0: If you're a journalist who uses the tool Help a Reporter Out, or Harrow, listen up. Harrow is moving to Cision's new app, Connectively. But what is Connectively? Well, imagine a place where you can quickly connect with expert sources for your next story. Connectively is a new app from Cision that's changing the way journalists like us, content creators, experts and PRs work together. So, if you're in search of credible sources, Connectively is your next stop. With just a click, you can publish your queries. These go straight to a feed where experts from loads of different backgrounds can respond, giving you their expertise. So go on, visit connectively.us to sign up for free. That's connectivel dot U S. Connectively.us. connectively.us.
1: Hello, and welcome to Freelancing for Journalists.
2: I'm Lily Cantor. And I'm Emma Wilkinson. Welcome to the final series of the year, which is all about specialisms. We're going to be digging into the world of niche journalism to find out exactly how it works. But first, as always, we're going to do our win of the week. So Emma, come on, hit me with it. What is your win of the week?
1: Okay, so, You and I have a big project that we're working on at mm-hmm. the moment that's proving quite hard to find time to work on that big project because yeah. we're working on, you know, full-time and everything else. Um, but it's quite important project. So I've been keeping a running tally this month of everything that I've, um, and I've got and everything that I've got um, sort of booked in. And as of yesterday, I hit what I needed to hit to pay the bills this month which means that I've taken next week off or not off I've removed cleared next week's schedule so that I can concentrate on the project so that felt quite nice because it was kind of sort of looming in the back of my mind that I really needed to find time um to find some spare time and it's just really hard isn't it to juggle that Mm. needing the income but finding the headspace to do something else so yeah I've yeah I feel quite good now that next week is sorted and I'm gonna have some thinking space
2: yeah what's and hope, yours Lily yeah well mine's sort of similar actually in that this month I've I've agreed to do a load of shifts um, and it's just been quite nice because it means I can kind of switch off from pitching um, and I know I've got this work coming through but on the days when I haven't got shifts similarly I'm working on our project and I worked it out that you know the shifts were enough to cover what I needed this month and then the rest could go on the project which one day we'll be able to reveal um but I guess it's tricky when you're working on something where you're not getting paid at the moment but you know further down the line you will get paid and it you know there will be other things that come out of it but it's it's that constant juggle but yeah for me it's just been taking on shift work and again clearing my mind I don't actually have to think other than turn up on the day and do what I need to do so that's been that's been nice but I certainly couldn't do it every month it's yeah it's not necessarily the way I like to work all the time but it's nice to just do it every now and then
1: yeah I mean mean, it just shows doesn't it how you have to constantly readjust your needs and the kind of things that you're working on depending on what else you've got on your plate Okay, it's time to introduce our guest for this episode, very exciting. Today uh, we have with us Charlotte Vowden, who is a freelance writer and presenter whose specialist subject is cars, particularly classic cars. Um, before being freelance, Charlotte spent more than 15 years as a national newspaper journalist and editor, and this is such an unusual niche, and she does a few other things as well, which we're going to learn about, um, but we can't wait to hear more about how she got into it. Yeah
2: so hi Charlotte, it's really good to have you here today. First of all though we want to find out a bit more about you. Um, Emma's given us a bit of an introduction there but can you tell us a bit more about your career so far and how did you end up kind of focusing on this particular niche?
0: Yeah well hello um, to both of you and everyone that's um, listening. It's an absolute privilege to to appear as a guest on the podcast um, so thank you for the invitation um, and I suppose I sort of potted history of my career so far Um, so I have both of my granddads to thank um, for where I am today professionally and also personally Um, so I had a really tough time when I was at school I was a lot bigger than I am now and I was bullied a lot Um, and my gramps which was my dad's dad used to pick me up from school in his Ford Escort and we'd sit in the car And I cry my eyes out and he'd say, do you know what, girl, one day you're going to show them how it's done, my darling. And I've actually got the initials of that phrase tattooed on my right wrist, which is my writing hand. Um, And he also said to me, you're going to get a column in the Times. You're going to do it. You know, I'm from a farming background. My dad's a mechanic by trade. We didn't know anyone in that profession or that world. But those words of encouragement from my gramps, you know, you're going to do it. You're going to get this column in The Times um, is basically what became the catalyst for my career. Um, I was a very creative child. I made loads of stuff, loved crafting, uh, loved writing stories and poems um, and things like that. And I remember in primary school, the thrill um, of getting the local newspaper when my review of A Midsummer Night's Dream had been published. It was like the best moment ever. Um, and my nan kept the newspaper cuttings. She kept all of the newspaper cuttings um, that she could get hold of when she was alive. Um, and as I said, I was like a really studious um, child. I did well at school, I went on to sixth form and then went to Essex University to study creative writing. Because at that point, um, I always had that sort of newspaper and journalism idea in my mind. But I sort of went down the creative writing route um, got there and thought, hmm, It's going to be really tricky to make a living out of this. Not to say journalism is any easier. It's just different. Um, And so I took it upon myself to go through actual physical print newspapers. You know, this was back in 2007. This was when Twitter was um, sort of in its infancy. This was before Instagram, TikTok. Facebook was still really early doors. Um, And so getting hold of people and accessing people like editors was so much harder than it is now um and so i went through physical papers in the local library and got all the email addresses you know like letters at or you know editor at or whatever um inquiries um and i constructed an email um and it was a kind of a blanket email so there was no personalization to it whatsoever sent it off and i had one reply and it was from an editor at the times and she told me to get a dictionary um, uh, because basically I'd misspelled the word career as courier. So I'd sent this email out to all of these addresses saying I was really interested in a career in journalism. Um, so that was lesson number one is always proofread before you press send on that email. Um, So I rewrote the email, sent it again, and I got a response uh, from a man called William Hartston, who still writes for the Daily Express, um, and he invited me down to the London office uh, for a cup of tea and some homemade biscuits and a chat. Uh, The chat went really well, and then from that point on, um, in my first and second and third year at uni, I travelled from Essex to London once a week to do some work experience with him. Um, so he had a column um, but then I started working across the desks you know as you do you go into the environment and you just start talking to people um, and you know just trying to get as many chances to write or help out or just learn how that newspaper works Um, and my first paid job uh, was thanks to a lady called Caroline Jowett and she ran the Arts Desk so I did paperback book reviews uh, a roundup every week which was pretty intense on top of my degree which is all about reading books every week um, and also writing stories Um, but I really I really hustled I really worked hard whilst I was studying Uh, when I graduated I moved back to North London where I'm from and commuted into London doing various different like work placements Um, but after the summer it just got so it was so expensive um and again this was the days where if you were using a mobile phone there weren't a lot of like unlimited calls contracts and so every phone call i made out of hours cost me money it cost my mum money on the landline and it just got to the point where i couldn't physically afford to do it anymore and i worked out in one magazine i'd done like six six grand's worth of features for free and you get to a point where you're just it's make or break um and i got to that point Um, and I had had a particularly difficult time at a certain magazine I call it my devil wears Prada chapter Um, and it was through the grapevine and someone at the Sunday Times had heard that I'd had a really tricky time a lady called Jill Turner and she rang me on a day I had a migraine I answered the phone as I was recovering and she said do you fancy doing a trial shift at the Sunday Times and hallelujah you know I was just like you know fairly fresh out of uni and I've been invited to do a trial shift at Sunday Times, and you know, going back to those conversations in my granddad's Ford Escort about you're going to get a column in the Times, girl. I was like, could this be the beginning of that that journey to getting that column? So of course I said yes. Uh, I went for my trial shift. I dressed in my mum's clothes because I didn't know what to expect. I thought it was going to be really corporate, really professional. So I was wearing this like tweed skirt, knee-high flat boots, a blazer, a really horrible coat. Sorry, mum um and i felt like an absolute impersonator intruder you know all of those things that people quite often talk about now is that you feel like an imposter that was totally me on the first day doing this trial shift um but it went really well and i realized that actually you have the different tribes within a newspaper you know the designers dress really differently to the news reporters to the people on the arts desk and so i kind of thought okay actually i can actually just come in here and wear the clothes that i feel comfortable in and do the job that i'm doing um so that was good um and that started a decade-long um sort of career at the sunday times Uh, during that i went and did my nctj in journalism six-month fast track um just to sort of foundation um skills in like law and uh shorthand which i never used um (laughs) and and public affairs and stuff like that and i also did a six month stint at uh, mail online uh for my Sims. Uh, found that really difficult and actually turned down um the one and only ever paid job like contractually that i ever got offered i just it, it didn't sit well what i was being asked to do with how my you know my journalism i feel like i want to be aligned with um so did 10 years at the Sunday Times, which was incredible. I worked across different desks, um, travel, arts, news. Um, I was very much part of that digital transition where you went from the print product to having smartphone apps and the tablet edition, um, which was really exciting. Um, And again, the the use of social media in sharing those stories and retelling and repurposing the stories that we were doing. Uh, And then in 2019, Um, they merged the times and Sunday times so the redundancies began I was part of that first wave uh, and I finished I think it was the 2nd of December uh, 2019 and for the first time in my professional career and also my personal life as well because the job was so consuming; it was everything to me. You know, I did horrible shifts, um, and you know, you miss out on so much when you do that kind of thing, that kind of job, as with many jobs. Um, and I really struggled um, when when I got made redundant. I I just I had no purpose. Um, but I had inherited my late grandfather's car, and this is my mum's dad. Uh, so this is when my other granddad comes into the story is that he'd passed away in 2016 uh, and he'd left this uh, beautiful chariot red 1960 British sports car, which is an MGA Roadster, convertible soft top, lots of chrome, beautiful car, uh, and the car is called frisky uh, because the number plate is fsk302 it was his cheeky little retirement present to himself um and so i'd already started writing for driving.co.uk which is a branch of the sunday times um about my experiences with the car with the scene um, and just exploring you know what it was all about um and so i say i got made redundant and then covid hit and being a freelancer during the pandemic and new to being a freelancer, also very difficult, but very privileged um, in that I was still living with my dad at the time. So I didn't have to worry about putting a roof over my head and food on my plate. I was very, very lucky um, because I'd moved back out of London by this point. Um, and I just sat there feeling really sorry for myself for a while. And then I started using his class, my granddad's classic car for volunteering during the pandemic um, just you know, doing shopping and taking it to various places um, for elderly and vulnerable people. And I thought I've got an opportunity here. Um, I'm just gonna I'm gonna go for it with this car. I'm gonna see what I can do with this car to change my career and give give myself a niche. Um, and that's what I did. And sort of three years later, three awards for classic car writing and a new TV series. Later is going okay um but as I say you know both of these chapters of my career have been very much um sort of begun by the influences of my granddads um and I feel really like really really privileged um about that and then you know now I'm sort of all about classic cars and the countryside and and things and it's just such a huge subject um so that's the sort of hopefully that made some sort of chronological sense um but that's how I kind of got to where I am today.
1: Yeah it's really interesting that you made that conscious decision to kind of find yourself a niche because we get asked this all the time from new freelancers like is it better to be a generalist is it better to kind of find your little area that you have specialist subject specialist knowledge of um, especially because you'd worked across all those desks at the Sunday time so potentially you could have done anything Um, so was that kind of talk us through that decision like a very conscious right i'm going to try and you know set my stall out in this kind of area of of journalism
0: i think for me um because my work has always been um such a big part of me personally um because particularly when you're writing you're putting yourself out there you're making yourself very vulnerable and so you know a lot of my emotion is tied up in in what i do for a living and what this car represented was a connection to my late grandfather Um, and during that time where lots of people were feeling vulnerable in 2020 when the pandemic initially hit and you know going from that point um, is that it was for me it was a way to reconnect to him um, but also do something that might make him proud and and you know having this classic car is such a privilege and I wanted to do something really useful with that so I feel like I was almost given that niche by him um, and I think having a niche is really powerful um, because it's really good to know the subject that you're talking about it's also really good to live your subject as well you know um, and I live and breathe that car um, I do stuff you know that isn't involved in work with it but I also use it used it as a kind of um, a, a sort of catalyst for for this next chapter Um, But it's also led to lots of other stuff um, that I hadn't expected. So, you know, I've got that niche. And I think being a female going into a very male dominated world and industry um, that has helped me um, sort of, I think, um, propel myself further because there aren't many voices like my own, um, particularly in journalism in within the classic car and automotive um, scene um, that that's really helped create. sort of uh, my own platform within that niche as well yeah
2: yeah I was going to ask you about that like what that's like being a woman in that seat which I would imagine as well is it an older um generation as well that's
0: involved in classic cars yeah the classic car scene um is typically you know middle-aged white male that is changing um, I have done uh, commissioned some research and that does show um, there is a slight shift um, in the gender balance um, but for me personally I'm all about championing women um, within the industry but also about you know sending the message that it needs to be a more diverse and inclusive place across the board you know it's not just about gender it's about age it's about backgrounds it's about everything and the industry at the moment just isn't there and so going into it I worked in newspapers that was a very male dominated industry um, and I feel like I got that thick skin when I worked there and so I think I was prepared for it um, when I started working within the automotive space. But I, I have found it at times quite difficult, particularly at shows. Um, I felt quite vulnerable. Uh, I have experienced, you know, um, sort of sexual discrimination, both physically and, you know, in verbal form. Um, and it can be frightening. I had uh, an instance um, at a car show where um a man was touched me in a like in a, in an inappropriate way, you know, um, and I didn't call him out on it. And it wasn't until two days later when I was talking to my friend, I just burst into tears and I got really angry with myself because I should have said, you, you, you know, I'm not comfortable with how you're holding. He put his hand my wrist and pulled me in and it was just it, it didn't make me feel good. Um, and so I've had to learn lessons now because a lot of what I do is out at shows, at events, when you're face to face with people um and you know generally is more male dominated um i've i've learned lessons myself is to actually call people out on stuff and say that's not okay that's not appropriate um and that's you know that's in what the way that people are approaching you as well because i think one of the biggest things that women face within the scene is bias whether that's unconscious or conscious um and so i've written pieces about my own experiences of it other women's experiences of it um and people get angry about that but it's not about shaming people it's about illuminating a problem and trying to encourage people to rethink the way that they think now um so that it changes in the future you know it's it's not about cancelling people it's about it's I suppose calling people out um but not in an aggressive way it's just trying to educate people that you know you can't say that you can't think that it's not It's not okay, Um, And so it has been quite challenging. Um, But to a point at the same time, that means that there's so much space to grow and do some good. Um, And and I have noticed it, you know, through what I do is I champion those women who are already there doing what they do. But just by putting them on that platform and giving the opportunity to share with other people what they're doing, um, you know, that's really powerful and it's really positive. And things like International Women's Day, I've always found quite difficult um, because, you know, as a freelancer, it's a hook to help pitch to an editor. You know, it's like, oh, well, it'll be trending on social media, so we should do this. And, and you know, it's using that hook of International Women's Day, but also being really conscious of the fact that every day should be, you know, publishing stories about awesome females. It's not just one day, but to get that conversation started within the scene and with the industry, I've used International Women's Day to do that. So I was the first female columnist in a magazine called Practical Classics, which is the most read um, sort of practical uh, classic car magazine uh, in the UK. And as far as I'm aware, International Women's Day had never been spoken about before, and so I wrote a column about it. And from that is just it's just it's, it's it's a starting point, and I think that's the thing. It's like yeah, you know, people have really strong opinions about things like that, but if you can use it as a starting point, then that's a really good thing because then hopefully it becomes more normal. You know, it's normalizing it um, and kind of going back to the whole diversity of the scene. Um, I interviewed uh, the um, boss of Ford UK a woman called Lisa Brankin and she, you know she rarely gives interviews so for me personally it was a really cool girl I was like yes you know she's agreed to talk to me um and she you know raised a really good point is that she doesn't you know she's the first woman to take on this role she's completely you know smashed it she's worked at the company for decades going from a graduate to literally the boss of Ford UK um and she said yes it's about you know encouraging more females into it but it's also looking across her office they hire from different sectors so that it's a more diverse space and there's different voices it's not just about gender it's about everybody um so I'm not sure if that I've gone off on tangents there but
1: (laughs) yeah no I mean one thing that kind of struck me as you were talking there is that if you're coming into a uh you know an area with a different taking a different lens because you've got a different perspective um you know you're coming into very male dominated kind of fields, but you're perhaps looking for more unusual stories for kind of different groups within those stories if you're kind of um one thing one of the arguments that's always made kind of against having a niche is that you can narrow yourself you can limit yourself too much on the type of articles you write but if you look at the articles that you've done you found so many kind of interesting stories, unusual stories within that world. Um so yeah, is there I wonder if that's because you've kind of come at it with a different perspective, maybe, that you've got a an eye for looking for those stories.
0: Absolutely. I've just been a creative. Um, you know, you you look at the thing, the car itself is an object, but how does that car get put together? Who you know it's like it's the story of that vehicle it's like if you're trying to encourage younger people into the automotive space it's like okay look at the car you could be the person that works out how to build that engine you could be the person that shapes the bodywork you could be the person that makes paint you could be the person that photographs it you could be the person that markets it you could be the person that um you know does the trim work you could be a person that writes about it you could be the person that drives it you could be the person that fixes it the car itself like anything is just an object but if you take a step back and look at all the amazing things that go on around that object and the people that are involved in that process you know the the opportunities to tell stories are endless and i think the scene is so stuck in its ways um you know the stories they're telling I, I find a lot of it really boring um, because there's not a lot of human um, sort of input into it. And so one of the series that I launched um, was called hard craft and it was all about creative people inspired by automotive. So I interviewed um, people, for example, a woman in Texas in the U S who takes old cars and she freehand laser cuts and, um, like lace patterns in this in in the body of the car so the car looks like it's wearing a dress of lace incredible you know um i've interviewed a chap called the rag and bone man um who's based down on the south coast and he takes anything from you know old motorcycle parts to um former engines on rf uh, like uh, airplanes that fought in the war he turns them into sculptures into furniture into chandeliers into installations Uh, I went to Amsterdam and I met this woman who worked secretly in the roof of the canal house and she makes tiny little um, silver and gold versions of cars that can be worn as jewelry or used as ornaments you know so Traditionally, the, the, the journalism has always been about car reviews uh, and the historic um, story about the inception of that car or maybe who raced it, who drove it. But I've come at it in, in a different way. And I'm like, well, what about all the people that make a living or do really cool stuff in a different way, but still associated with that car? You know, most people wouldn't have necessarily associated a classic Beetle with a woman in Amsterdam who makes awesome jewelry and she uses recycled gold. Um, and recycled silver um and and that's that's I've just I've just looked for different stories and and also um I as I say i I, I write from the heart uh, and I'm always very honest about my experiences um, and there's there's this kind of idea if you have a classic car then you must be someone that wears overalls gets under the car tinkers every weekend that is not me and that is totally okay um but traditionally it's been like well if you don't know how to do it then you shouldn't own this car and it's like well why you know you can learn and you do learn if you own an old car you're inevitably going to learn how it works because it's going to have a problem at some point but it doesn't mean to say that you have to be that greasy spanners on cliche idea of what a classic car owner is you know i'm coming in i'm like you can have fun with this you can do really cool stuff you know you can my friend made. I just got married, and she made this amazing replica of my car in cake with a miniature version of myself and my now husband. You could be someone that makes cakes that look like classic cars. You know, there's so much to it, um, and it's just looking at it from a different perspective. And and I'm really honest about that on social media. I push myself and the way that I use my granddad's car um like last year I did uh, 2,000 miles around the UK uh, with my dad as my co-driver um we took it in turns so we did 2,000 miles in 46 hours and 59 minutes to for charity and for a 60 then 64 year old car that's incredible you know and and so it's like you can do this stuff you don't have to just take it to the pub on a rainy day challenge yourself with this car um and and I think that it's kind of shaken things up a bit because I've not, you know, I've come into it just a very different, different angle. And the first piece I wrote um, outside as a freelancer was about failure. It was early 2020. um, And as we all know, uh, we all got sort of locked down. Um, But in February, 2020, my MGA was about to depart for Bangkok. um, And my dad and I were going to drive around, uh, Southeast Asia, 20 days through mainland China, uh, Tibet, Nepal, and then ship home from in uh, Calcutta in India. Um, and the first feature I wrote was about prepping the car for that journey. And then the the difficult decision to cancel that trip before this was February. So it was before it kind of kicked off here. Um, and it, I called it mission aborted. And so my first piece was about failure and, and the emotional impact that decision had before the pandemic had really hit. Uh, the practical side of preparing the car and the connection I had to have to the car and my granddad and I closed the piece um saying that he always used to say to me drive safely sweetheart and that was the way that I finished that feature and it's a different tone it's a different approach to this like gung-ho or really practical um sort of article that people are are quite used to
2: and it's really really clear how passionate you are about this and and I think yeah, it's obvious that you're bringing almost like, I suppose, a feminine perspective, which is much more, like you say, about the people and the feelings rather than, you know, the logistics and the mechanics. Um, And that's great because that then opens it up to a whole new audience, doesn't it? Um, So I can really see how you've you've kind of carved out a niche within a niche as well, but through that, that perspective. I mean, you've mentioned um, Practical Classics magazine, but could you tell us a bit more about sort of the range of people that you work for? Because I think you mentioned a TV series as well.
0: Yeah so I write for both online um, and print publications so that ranges from Practical Classics magazine um, to a publication called Octane, a luxury lifestyle magazine called Tempest and then online um, platforms Um, so uh, I write for a publication called Haggerty, which is um, US and UK based um, but also um, I write for Country Living magazine which is quite honestly my favourite favourite gig I love it um, and that's where I think the, the the sort of the niche thing comes into play because the niche that I've carved is classic cars but classic cars are also associated with heritage skills and Country Living look at artisans and the heritage skills that they're preserving and so You know, I started writing about classic cars, never imagined I'd be writing about someone who uses a 300 year old bronze casting technique to preserve the forms of fruits, you know. And so that's where I find it really interesting is that where that niche can go. But it's the same theme. It's still a heritage skill that that artisan is using to the heritage skill that apprentice mechanic is using to keep a jaguar on the road um and so that's what's really been quite fun and quite interesting and, and kept things varied um and then you know in the past I've always been writer editor um very much around you know hiding behind my words um whereas in I think was it I, I lose track of time it was June last year um uh, someone contacted me on Instagram and said we're Doing screen tests um, to put together a new classic car restoration show, um, and I thought it was one of those dodgy DMs that you get, and you're like, yeah, whatever, I'm gonna ignore that. But it turned out to be very legitimate, um, and I had a screen test, and and I found out at the end of June, I think it was, that I'd um, landed the role of presenter, um, and it was, it was just, it was very surreal um, because I'd never seen myself doing anything you know in front of the camera I think we've all become quite used to communicating on cameras you know whether it's zoom facetime you know whatsapp phone calls and you know with cameras and things but to actually be a presenter and in front of a camera was a very alien thing but now I'm freelance and I'm not affiliated with one publication I am am me and that is so liberating and I didn't realize how institutionalized I'd become don't get me wrong I had an amazing 10 years but being free from any one publication or brand is so, so liberating. So when I went into that screen test, I was nothing but myself. I was I said, I've never done this before. I've got nothing to lose. um, And that was really, really cool. And so when I went to do the filming last summer, it was the first day of that mega heat wave we had in July. <laughs> and so the format of the show is that there's there were 10 episodes. Each episode features two classic cars. Um, The owners bring them to the workshop. My job is to find out what their story is, why they love their car, why it deserves to be restored or brought back to life um, and given that next chapter um, and sort of try and diagnose what the issue might be. It then goes into the workshop, which is a female-led format. So you've got three three women that work there. You've got the trim shop, um, the body shop and the mechanic, all female. And then you've got Derek, who has been doing this for, he's a mechanic, he's been doing this for like a million years. He is, you know, everything you want to know, he knows the answer. Uh, And so the show itself is female-led, but it also shows how you can, you know, generations can work together. You've got old school and new school, and they can actually come together to do something positive, um, even when they have different approaches, different personalities. Uh, So that's one element that's really nice about that show. Um, and as I say the first day of filming we did was the first day of that heat wave and I had not sweat tested my new t-shirt uh, and it did not go down very well uh, and then I spilled my lunch down it and it was an absolute baptism of fire in all senses because it's so hot and I had to climb on this trailer with this very hot metal car and touch it and pretend that it wasn't really burning my fingers and things like that so but it was amazing it was an amazing summer and that first week um, I was on set I also got awarded my second um, award for classic car uh, first award as a classic car writer of the year, which is really cool. So last summer was massive um, and filmed this series that went out on Dave uh, this year. Um, and We don't know if we've got a second one yet. We'll find out hopefully soon. But it's just, it was it blew my mind, you know, from. 2020 when I had no job no work and my granddad's car and thought okay what can I do with this how can I do something purposeful and useful to doing that was like wow mind-blowing and that's what's really cool about being freelancer is that you can say yes to stuff um but don't get me wrong it can be really hard really isolating I do struggle with it um as well because no one's got your back um and and pricing yourself and all of those things and knowing your rights I would really struggle with that. I'd not done presenting before. So I didn't know what a day rate should be. I didn't know what your rights are, anything like that. Um and there are people I've spoken to for advice, but at the end of the day, you still don't know. You never really know. You're like, oh, have I downpriced myself, outpriced? I don't know. Um, but yeah, yeah. so quite varied, um, for sure.
1: Yeah, those kind of things are difficult, is not it? It's kind of where that's where gen um kind of freelance networks are really important because to mm. try and get that support from other Freelancers. I mean, one thing that Lily and I have always said is, just be open to new opportunities, kind of I would say the same thing that you did that when I started freelancing, I was trying to picture what that would look like and who I would work for, and actually what my career looks like now is completely different to what I'd kind of envisaged at the beginning. And mm-hmm. um, I mean, have you found that as you've be kind of become known in this world that you get people coming to you more, or are you still like, in that pitching cycle mostly
0: absolutely um i it didn't take long to kind of get a bit of a a sort of I guess a reputation and to get my name out there because I think because there aren't many female journalists in automotive and so being in that minority did help Um, and I think that's an important message is that you know to a point there there is a tick box element to it sometimes but those boxes have to be ticked initially it's a starting point you know because I'm still here because I'm good at what I do and that's a really hard thing sometimes to be confident enough to say Um, but I find now that. It's still I still pitch to people. Um, but people are coming to me more than they used to, um, because they know who I am, what I do. Um, and part of that has just been you know, through showing what I do on social media, but also just just networking. It's as as you both know, it's just getting out there talking to people and just being really positive and ah I'm full of ideas and full of beans so I do get approached more now um, by editors um particularly for presenting roles and things like that so I've done some event presenting at festivals and, and stuff like that and that's stuff that people come to me for but then once someone's come to you you can then go oh okay so they want me to present so they might want me to present so I'll approach them it's like the dominoes isn't it you think oh okay maybe I'll try this hmm. and so I then pitch myself to other people um so it's a, it's, it's a bit of both really yeah and it's interesting that you, you sort of talked about putting
2: yourself out there on social media and kind of building those networks and we've kind of noticed that you're quite active on LinkedIn and this is something that Emma and I have both kind of struggled to get our head around has that been a conscious decision to that linkedin is the place to be and that's what you want to concentrate on
0: um linkedin for me i see it more as a sort of um, a concentrated professional network um so it's obviously a social media platform um but The network that I've built on there is more industry led um, and professional, whereas something like Instagram, you've got followers who just like you because they like your car. They like what you get up to. Um, And that's not necessarily a professionally uh, linked relationship that you have with that follower. Whereas LinkedIn, I think, is more professional, although saying that you do there is it's getting a bit hazier but I tend to make sure that I post my articles um, and stories and things like that on there now. And I never used to use LinkedIn. I set up an account years ago and it just sat there dormant. And i have to say, I need to sit down and just make it more streamlined. And I need to go through that. You know, you've got your timeline, you've your career. You know, I noticed that I'm still working at daily express and it's like, no, that was, that was about 15 years ago. (laughs) So I do need to do my admin on that platform to make sure that it is more sleek and, and kind of up-to-date in that respect. But it is good for connecting p- to people. But I still find it quite baffling because people say that you shouldn't accept the connections with other people unless you know them, because then it looks like you've just got lots of people that you're connected with and it devalues your profile. Whereas other people say, yeah, but it's a good because then you've got that connection and you can message them. So I find LinkedIn... very strange beast um whereas something like Instagram I've that's actually where the presenting opportunity came from um because the director had seen what I was up to um and the videos and 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 more my personality which I suppose lends itself to television whereas you know on LinkedIn there's not so much of that facing stuff it's more about here's my work this is what I do
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, so I'm sort of the other way around to you in that my profile is very up to date and kind of sorted, but I never post on there. So, and the one thing that you kind of hear from people who are on there a lot is you've got to keep posting, you've got to keep posting. So it's kind of making that conscious decision, isn't it? To like, Mm. this is a place where, that I'm going to use to, to try and find work. Um. This has been so interesting, Charlotte. It's been brilliant. It's really nice chatting to you. And before we sign off, we want to get your recommendation um, of a piece of work by a freelance journalist. Have you got a? Have you got something to point us to?
0: Yeah, so it's actually uh, one of my former colleagues at the Sunday Times, a woman called Katie Binns. So she specializes in like the nitty gritty of finances, um, everything from kind of economic abuse to you know, how to get a mortgage and things like that. But she did a piece recently about new mothers that are missing out on thousands of pounds of pay um, due to failings of their employers um, during maternity leave. So I definitely recommend reading that if you are a mother or hoping to be one i'm not but i still found found it and found it very interesting because you know as a woman these issues you know affect all of us and it's just good to get a picture about the bigger picture about you know what challenges we face you know things like um economic abuse that's increasingly becoming a problem um for women um, more so than men and so you know katie does a lot of these reporting she does workshops uh, and as a freelancers you know i think it's really important and i'm guilty of it i'm not on top of that kind of stuff i haven't sorted out my pension or all those things so you know if i took more notice of what katie said in her in her writing um then i'd probably be in a better position but her stuff is is brilliant really informative and really well explained um and she also loves wild swimming which i just absolutely have to applaud her for um so she can be found on twitter it's at kt underscore bins b-i-n-n-s so you can follow her on there that's where she posts a lot of her stuff she's also on linkedin um so you can find her in both of those places but she's yeah she's just incredible and she's carved a niche for herself and has absolutely rolled with it and is bossing it you know she gets asked to do podcasts and things like that all the time um and so yeah she's definitely one to follow
2: fantastic well we'll dig out all of those links and I think that's yeah really useful particularly uh, maternity leave because obviously for freelancers it's even more difficult um as for pensions we, we did a previous episode um called sort out your pension so yeah.
0: you have a listen to that one yeah, i did but i've still not done it
2: <laughs> yeah it's just it's just doing it isn't it it's get, it is, getting yeah. it done ticking it off the list oh well thank you so much it's been really really fascinating we're um, going to wrap up now just to let our listeners know that if you want some more exclusive podcast content, then over on Substack on our premium version, we do regular uh, bonus podcast episodes. Yep.
1: And all of our other resources can be found on our website, uh, freelancingforjournalists.com. So go and go and have a look at that.
2: Yep. Go over, check us out. We've got all our links on there and all our bits and bobs. But We're going to wrap up, so goodbye for now. Bye for now. Thank
0: you, bye.